Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our study in this wonderful book, this history book that tells some of the most important stories in the history of Christianity, a book written so that so that those who were coming to faith in Jesus could have something to hang their confidence on so they could know the background of this movement they were joining and understand why it was worthy of their trust and hope. We're going to try to learn along with them as we go story by story through this book this year. We've talked about Luke as a kind of curator, the guy who wrote this book. It was his job to to collect all of these stories and then to decide which ones of them we most needed to hear if we were to have confidence that it's all true and worthy of hope. The last couple of stories we've looked at, and the story we'll look at next week, it's not difficult to see why Luke chose to include those. The one we're going to consider this morning comes right between two of the biggest moments in the history of Christianity. Last last time, we looked at the ascension of Jesus. This is a moment when Jesus, who had lived in a body as real as mine or yours, was lifted up from earth and out of sight into heaven where he reigns now from a throne that rules over all the universe. That's a big moment. That's worthy of inclusion. It's one of the things that makes sense of the whole. Next week, we'll be looking at a moment called Pentecost. That's the moment when the promises of the, of the prophets that one day God, by His Spirit, would dwell among His people come true. When God's Spirit comes down in power on those who were gathered there waiting and praying. We're going to see that next week. To be honest, it would have been a pretty smooth transition if Luke had just decided to go straight from the ascension where people saw Jesus go up to the Pentecost, where we see the Spirit come down. In fact, after the ascension, the apostles who watched it happen went back to the upper room and prayed that God would do what he promised to do. And we see Pentecost is the answer to those prayers. It's set up perfectly. But in between those two stories, Luke, the curator, decides to tell us another story that comes off as, at least on a first reading, like a bit of institutional housekeeping. In between those two pivotal stories, Luke tells us the story of how and why the earliest Christians decided to replace Judas with another apostle named Matthias. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the one who had turned against Jesus and betrayed him so that the authorities could arrest him and kill him. In this story, he's replaced by a guy named Matthias. It seems like an odd place to put a little organizational housekeeping, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be one thing if if this story about Matthias was a a kind of origin story in a superhero sense, where you need to know where he came from because from this point forward, I mean, he is all over the story doing battle. And, And yet that's not it at all. Matthias is never mentioned. Literally, the last time his name comes up is when we're told he's chosen as Judas's replacement, and he's off the scene. He's not the hero of this story, even though it ends with him. Why does Luke put it here? Between these two pivotal moments in the history of Christianity. Yesterday, uh, <clears throat> I was having a little quality time with my youngest son, and uh, he's, he's shown a real interest in music. I'm trying to cultivate that. So we were watching some YouTube clips of, um, of classical symphony orchestras playing pieces I thought that he might connect with, you know, the kind that I like, that are on my level. Nice, simple melodies. That's what I'm going for. I mean, at this point, I was mainly just trying to get out of his head the variety of Kids Bop Kids adaptations that he sings on a loop out of his head and mine. Uh, so, so I was connecting with some of the ones that I thought he would, 
that he would enjoy. I was showing him what the instruments were, you know, because many of them he wasn't, he never seen before. And I realized about myself as I'm doing this, what kind of, I'm reminding myself of what kind of music I really appreciate in the classical repertoire. Not the heady stuff that I can't follow, but stuff that has a nice, clear melody that I enjoy that comes out early and then maybe fades out, but is always just beneath the surface. It comes back up at, at key moments, back and forth, this theme, this melody that ties the piece together and that reemerges in ways that are always in, interesting and, and inspiring. That's, that's the kind of music I like. I think that's the kind of music Luke is writing here. The reason Luke puts this story in between these two pivotal moments of Christianity, the reason he puts it right here at the very beginning of his overall story, the reason it's so much more than just organizational housekeeping is that Luke is helping us to connect with a melody that's going to run through a theme that's going to tie together the whole picture and apart from which, if we don't get it, the whole story won't make sense and we won't get the encouragement that we need from it. The theme that Luke is laying down is one I mentioned in an overview sermon of this book a, a few weeks back. It's the theme of God sovereignly working in his people that this story is not ultimately a story about the apostles as important as they are. They come and go. They live and die. This is ultimately a story about God who is at work in the world, building his church and giving his church everything it needs to thrive. That's the theme that's going to be weaved, woven in through the, the whole of Acts and that comes to the surface here this morning, and I want to show it to you. I want to teach you to recognize it. Another way, to, uh, another way to frame this this morning, and here's what you can write down in your guide if you're, if you're going to be taking notes and you want some, some benchmarks to look for and to follow. Luke has written this whole story to build confidence. That's what Luke chapter 1 tells us, and it applies to both of these books, Luke's Gospel and Acts. He's built it so that the per, the, the, those who have come to faith in Jesus can have certainty about what they've been taught. So on what does Christian confidence rest? What has God done here? to give us confidence in what we believe? That's the question. And I want to point you to three moments, three sections of this text we're going to look at this morning that build Christian confidence. Three planks, if you will, on which our confidence rests. They are a sovereign plan, number one, a certain gospel, number two, and a faithful guide, number three. All three of these are God's sovereign activity, working in the church, giving us everything that we need. I want to draw your attention to a sovereign plan, a certain gospel, and a faithful guide. I want to begin by reading the story. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse, um, in verse 15 of chapter 1 and read through verse 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. 
and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Where does a Christian's confidence rest? It rests first on a sovereign plan. When Peter rises to speak to his friends that have gathered together after Jesus' ascension, his mind is on another friend, a friend who had left them under vastly different circumstances than those in which Jesus had just left. His mind is on Judas, Judas the apostle, the the member of their band of brothers, the, the one who betrayed Jesus to the authorities and betrayed all of them along the way. It's no surprise that Peter and others would have been thinking about that terrible night. It wouldn't have been that long ago, maybe a, a, roughly as, as far removed from them as Christmas is from us, not that long, raw. They'd experienced a trauma that night. For Peter, Judas' betrayal was personal and painful. That's why it's on his mind. But for future Christians, the ones that that Luke is writing for, Judas' betrayal betrayal raised questions. They wouldn't have the same learned response of pain, bitterness even. They would struggle with the questions that this betrayal raised for them. For those that Luke wrote to to encourage and build up confidence, the fact that that one of Jesus' closest followers had decided to leave him was was surely a, a troubling sign that something might be really off here. I mean, this guy was an insider's insider. He wasn't like this, this fringe participant who was always ostracized and who, who grew bitter over that and decided to, 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 to get everybody back. I mean, he was so far inside that he was the one entrusted with keeping the money. He saw everything. He heard everything that Jesus said. And in the end, he didn't buy it. He didn't believe. He decided Jesus would be worth more to him in blood money than as a savior, as a would-be Messiah. So you can imagine new Christians who saw none of this for themselves. They didn't see what Jesus did firsthand. They didn't hear him speak firsthand. Thinking, Judas saw things more clearly than I ever will. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. Why should I trust Jesus if he didn't? You see the question? How it would have built for them, how Luke needed to answer it, right here at the very beginning. This is the legitimate concern that potential Christians or new believers would have had. And it's what makes Peter's opening words here so relevant to our confidence as Christians. The first thing Peter says 
as he rises to speak is that the scripture had to be fulfilled. Do you see that? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. It's a scripture concerning Judas, he says, who was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What Peter is saying here is that Judas had to betray Jesus. He, 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 Judas, then had to die and be replaced. And that Judas had to betray Jesus, had to then die, had to then be replaced, because the Scripture predicted that this would happen. That's why Peter quotes from the Psalms. Luke has told us at the end of his gospel that Jesus spent his time after he had raised from the dead telling his followers all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to him. He opened up the scriptures to them in a new way, including the Psalms, including presumably these Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 that Peter quotes from. These were Psalms in their original context that spoke of God's enemies, the enemies of God's people, especially, uh, especially rising up against God's king, David. And Jesus has now shown them that, that all of that was pointing ultimately to him. As true as it was in its original context, it has a bigger, a deeper, a broader meaning in Jesus' own life than it ever had for David. And Peter is showing here that the Psalms predicted precisely what went down. As terrible as it was, this great disappointment, this great betrayal, as wicked as it was, that's Luke's word for it. It was an act of wickedness. As wicked as it was, all of it was part of God's sovereign plan. It was no surprise to him. It was no sudden swerve off the line. It was no obstacle to overcome. It had to happen because God said it would happen, and God always fulfills his word. It happened because God was in complete control of every step in the story of Jesus' death, long before the events themselves played out. And in his sovereign plan, even terrible evil works toward the salvation he's bringing to his people. Can you see why this plank is essential in the confidence that Christians can't live without? These first readers, the apostles themselves, and then those to whom Luke was directly writing, they would need to know that they serve a God like this, whose sovereign plan even incorporates evil. Think of what was to happen to them. This Peter who's speaking right now, he would soon be imprisoned. Eventually, according to tradition, he would be killed for his faith. James, another apostle, here for these very words, he's soon to be killed even in Acts itself, in the story that Acts tells. Paul, who comes on the scene later, he'd be beaten, he'd be stoned, he'd be arrested, he eventually would be killed. These were just the headliners, like just the most obvious ones. There were who knows how many more brothers and sisters who would be thrown into prisons and out of families because they choose to identify with Jesus. And they would need to know that their lives unfold according to a sovereign plan ruled by a God who's able to bring good out of evil. They needed to know that, friends, and you do too. You need that same confidence today. Because this sovereign plan that we see at work, even in Judas's betrayal of Jesus, is a sovereign plan that extends beyond the basic facts of 
the gospel, the life and death of Jesus, and extends even to the very details of your life. These stories ultimately are showing us the kind of God that we're dealing with and what he's able to do. That's why Paul, not telling a story, but writing a letter, teaching truth about God, makes basically this same point in a more direct statement. Romans 8, 28, he says that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, you're going to need that. You do need that, even this week, because you've been sinned against. Maybe in ways that have grievously wounded you. You will need to know that you belong to a God who knows how to bring good out of the evil you have suffered. You'll need to know this when you're experiencing the brokenness of this world, as I know you are this morning. When you've experienced suffering that you never asked for and cannot understand. Suffering that, that you may not outlive. That, that, that may have left scars on you, friends, even in the last week or two, that you'll carry for the rest of your life. If that's where you are, you need what they needed to know that whatever else may be going on, your life belongs to a sovereign God who knows how to bring good out of evil, who, who doesn't just know how to do that, but has planned to do that and will do that because he's promised to and he's always faithful to his word. I get that this raises philosophical questions for us. I get that. I don't want to hide from those. How can Judas be responsible for wickedness when it was all planned in advance? But the Bible just says that he is responsible and that God was sovereign over all of it. That tension, friends, is all over the Bible. I can't resolve it for you because the Bible doesn't even try to. Beyond trust that both factors are true, we are responsible and he is in charge, we have no resolution. Yes, the questions remain. But when, you, when you're up close to evil and suffering... When the cry of your heart is only deliver us from evil that you know all too well. It, it matters less how or why than that God can use evil for good according to his sovereign plan. I, here's another way to say it. When what you need is confidence and comfort more than you need answers, you will find it here. In this truth. What has God given to us? What is he doing here to lay a foundation for our confidence as Christians? Well, one thing God has given us is a sovereign plan. Another gift that he's given us that comes out in this story. Another piece in this melody that Luke is setting for us that will carry on throughout the rest of the book is a certain gospel. A certain gospel. This comes out, I, I, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I go into these details here, because this comes out in a subtle way in the qualifications that Peter 
gives us for who would have to replace Judas. So what he's just done in these first few verses is explain that Judas needs to be replaced and what happened that created this vacancy that now we've got to fill. What he's going to do in verse 21 and the next couple of verses after that is explain what would have to be true of a person to take this place. And in that explanation of what qualifications this person needs to have, we get a look into a crucial piece of Christianity that is essential for us to be confident We get a look at what the gospel is, how it's defined, why we can trust it. So if the defection of Judas from following Jesus was part of the plan, as true as that is, leading to the death of Jesus for sinners, it did create another sort of problem that was also predicted in the Psalms. The second Psalm that Peter quotes predicts that another person is going to have to take his office. You know, There was an office there. It couldn't just go away. Peter had said back in verse 17, he was numbered among us. He was given his allotment in the ministry. That means there's a section of this ministry that has to be done by somebody. It's now going to go undone. We've got to fill this spot so that the ministry gets shared properly. But even beyond that, he was numbered among us. There were 12 of these guys for a reason. Jesus himself tells us in Luke's gospel that it pictures something of the 12 tribes of Israel, that this is God doing a work that's consistent with what he did before. It's an echo of that division of God's people that now carries over into the founding of this church. There's got to be 12 of them, just like there were 12 apostles, or excuse me, 12 tribes of Israel. So we got to fill this spot. And in verse 21, Peter lays out what must be true of anybody who fills the spot. Think about this as the section of necessary qualifications in a standard job description. He's not yet giving us what the job is. He's telling us what a person would need in order to fill the job. And when he gives us this set of qualifications... I want you to see that he's laying another plank in the foundation of our confidence as Christians. Let me, let me show you how. Look at the list. Somebody, whoever's going to fill this office, has got to have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. The whole ministry, he had to be there for it. Starting from the baptism of John, it's John the Baptist, the man who baptized Jesus, the, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he had to be there for that. And all the way until his ascension, when he was taken up from us. That means, in other words, let me translate that for you. That means that that it had to be somebody who heard everything that Jesus taught. He was there for all those sermons, all those teaching sessions. It had to be somebody who saw all that Jesus did. Every miracle, every response to every situation, he was there for it. It had to be somebody who was there when Jesus died, that witnessed the brutality the physical nature of this death, the fact that it really did happen. He really died. And then who saw him again, as physical as he ever had been before, raised again after his death in a body that was radically transformed, who met with him after that to hear him teach about what had happened and why it was so important, and who had to be there at the very end when he was taken up into heaven. In other words, this guy had to see it all. When you think of an apostle, what was necessary for them was that they were certified eyewitnesses. And their job would come straight out of these qualifications. Their job was to pass on what they'd seen, to testify to what happened, to to, to remind people that it really was in history that Jesus came and went, lived and died, rose and ascended. This has huge implications for the gospel that we claim. It feeds directly into our confidence as Christians. Here's what you need to know, friends. 
This gospel, right, we, we, we use that word a lot around here. It, it just means good news. It's the news about what happened and what it means for us. This message about what God has done, it is a message about specific events that happened in time and space for real. It wasn't for these apostles to come up with. And it isn't for us to adapt. It's just something to listen to, to believe, and to pass on. Let me push this a little bit further. Imagine a vacancy comes open on the Supreme Court. How are you going to fill that vacancy? Let's just set aside the politics involved, right? Set aside the politics and think about the qualifications. To get a seat on the Supreme Court today, you're going to need, a, you're going to need an Ivy League uh, an, an Ivy League law degree, right? By my count, I think every single one of them has it. So don't even think about it if you didn't get your Ivy League law degree. You're going to need, uh, you're going to need a clerkship probably with Supreme Court justice at some point because we wouldn't want to risk there being some sort of diversity of perspective on the court. We need to make sure that they came through the right pipeline so that they think in the right boxes. Probably going to need some years serving as a judge at another level of the court system. You know, so if for, no, for another reason, that, that we need to know that they'll be comfortable sitting around all day in those robes, the, the heat, sedentary lifestyle. You're going to need certain qualifications that are suited to what that job requires, right? Now think about the qualifications Peter's giving us for this job. Pay close attention to how they fill this vacancy. If Christianity were mainly a philosophy of life, if, if its main purpose were to teach us how to make the most of the years that we have, how to get along with others, how to win friends, influence people, how to make the most of the resources you have, how to live a good life, if that was mainly what it is, you'd probably look for somebody as a founder of this organization that has a really solid education, maybe a nice publication record, a decent following, someone who's compelling in their public speaking, a creative thinker and a, and a, and a persuasive speaker. That is not any of these guys, at least not that we know of. I mean, best we can tell, I mean, the only apostles whose background we really know that much about are mostly fishermen. There's no sign that they were especially well-educated or good at public speaking or influential in any other way. These are just guys. I mean, I'm sure good guys, probably hardworking and whatever, guys that you'd want to hang out with. But, but what matters is not the skills they bring to the table, but what they saw. What matters, what makes them fit for this office is what they witnessed what they can uniquely testify to. These apostles, in other words, they're not called to be creators. They're not building something from the ground up. They're called to be custodians of a message that's already there, already fixed, because it's tied to history. It had to have happened, and it had to have been seen for them to, have, to, to fulfill their job. Friends, Christianity does have huge implications for our lives. It does. But it is not mainly a philosophy for life. At its heart is a set of news about events in history and what those events mean for the world. The gospel that we claim, the one that plays such a central role in Acts through the rest of this book, the one that the apostles take and run with throughout the rest of this book, talking about it wherever, wherever we see them talking, it's a gospel, a news that tells of Jesus, a man like us in every way, who claimed to be the Son of God, who backed those claims by works of amazing power, who taught like no one ever had before, who said in advance he needed to die, who chose to die on purpose because he gave his life as a sacrifice for sinners, who then was really actually killed, a brutal and public death on a cross, 
This message then tells us that this same man was raised in a recognizable but radically transformed body. And that in that body, with that resurrected mouth and tongue, he promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life like his life to everyone who will repent of those sins and trust in him. Everything depends on those events. And the apostles were there to see them. I think the the centrality of this office is pointing us to a certain gospel we can bank on. And that's why Paul, another key Christian leader, not part of this group of 12, in a famous section, 1 Corinthians 15, says, what was hand on to me, I handed on to you. He got from them what he now passes on to everybody he meets with. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and then raised again, according to the scriptures. And then he lists off all the eyewitnesses who saw him, just like, just like Acts here is suggesting would happen. Paul takes this message, this certain gospel, certified by eyewitnesses, and runs with it, just as we're meant to do. Everything depends on these things having happened. And that's why Paul in that same chapter says, if he's not really raised, if no one can actually witness to his resurrection, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But in fact, in history, seen by many witnesses, he has been raised. He really can deliver on the things that he's promised. You can have confidence in that. Because God has given us witnesses to certify it. Friends, we don't have time this morning to go into the wonderful reasons to trust the message of Christianity. But if you're here evaluating the message I've just laid out for you, I want you to know there is compelling testimony from eyewitnesses to back up every one of these claims. The kind of testimony that we rely on for pretty much everything else we know and believe about the ancient world. The kind of evidence that supports these claims is not different from the evidence that supports anything we know about this period. And I would love the chance to point you in the right direction towards some resources that can show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to either recommend you some books or even better, meet with you and talk to you about some of these books because the evidence is strong and you can have confidence about what we've been told. I want to finish now, friends, with one more plank in Christian confidence, one more thing that we have received that Luke is putting on our radar here because it's going to matter so much in what comes later. We have the confidence of God's faithful guidance. The same God who planned everything that happened, who accomplished everything that happened in his son, still guides his people now and forever. I think that's what we're meant to take from what they do. Once the, clear, the, once the job description is clear and they know it's time to pick somebody and they get down to business, we're told in verses 23 to 26 how they handle this decision. No one but Jesus has ever chosen one of the 12. And this is a decision they want to leave to him. They've paid close attention to the criteria Peter laid out. And verse 23 tells us they put forward two guys who fit that criteria. They were there for everything. They saw and heard it all. Joseph, called Barsabbas, and Matthias. They've got two guys that fit the bill. But from here, they pray. 
They trust the Lord knows the heart on a level they can't see. And they trust that he already knows who he's chosen for this apostleship. You know the hearts of all. Verse 24. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They just want to know who he's already chosen. So to figure out his choice, God's choice, they cast lots. That's right. They take a stone, maybe a piece of wood, whatever they had, wrote the names of each of these men, one each per lot, put them in a bowl or a bag of some kind, shook it up until one of the names popped out. The name that popped out was God's choice for them. This was a practice that was known in the Old Testament, sanctioned even. It's based, we believe, on Proverbs 16.33, which tells us that though the lot is cast into the lap, every single one of his decisions is from the Lord. And this is a practice that leads them, verse 26, to Matthias. That's how they knew what God wanted. And what we've been saying all along is that Luke is telling us these stories so we can be confident that God is at work. We're told this story so that we know that God was crucial in this specific choice. So that we know his hands are not off of his people. He's still active, still leading. Even though Christ is no longer on earth, God is still leading them. He's still giving them what they need, still working all things according to his purpose. So when we move forward, we move forward with him. That's what this story is here. All that said, raises two big questions for us that I finish with. Is this how we're supposed to find God's will today? That's probably the first question that I had when I read over this story. I don't know if you guys have been gnawing on that one this entire time and struggling to keep up with what else I've said because you've been waiting on this one. I, I would forgive you if, you if you were. It's a big question. And wouldn't it be nice if this were how we're supposed to find God's will? I mean, today especially. You know, bets, they're still taking them. Kansas City or San Francisco. Imagine if you could just draw one on a lot, draw the other on another lot, toss it in a bag, cast it, and that was your answer. Obviously, though, that is not what this text is calling us to do. First of all, that would be really presumptuous on our part to assume that, that every decision we make, God will speak to directly in this method we have chosen. Nowhere are we commanded to do this. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we see other Christians doing this. And, and, and on top of it all, we're not actually apostles. We don't have that kind of pipeline of authority that God gave to them. We don't have the authority to communicate with God like this or to confirm what he's saying. And honestly, we aren't faced with the choice of an apostle where it could be presumptuous of us to make that kind of choice for ourselves. It would be presumptuous to assume we get to find God's will in the way they did. And friends, it's also unnecessary for us to seek God's will in the same way they did. One of the crucial things to know that several writers helpfully pointed me to this week is that this comes right before God's spirit is given to his people. In chapter 2, the very next thing that happens is God sends his spirit down into his people to work amongst them and to lead them. And after chapter 2, nothing like this happens again. Just a few chapters later, the church is faced with another big decision about personnel. They've got a problem in the life of the church. They need somebody on it to help solve it. They say, set aside some men who can organize and get this thing done. And when they come to that decision, they don't cast lots to decide who those men are. They just make a good choice. 
As much as we might like a sure thing, tangible and obvious, we've been given different gifts than they were given and called to use them in faith. And speaking of those different gifts, question number two. If not like this, how do we seek God's guidance today? I mean, if what I'm claiming is that Luke tells us God is still guiding his church so that we're confident that we go forward into our future as a church with him, how do we seek the guidance they sought by lots? Well, we'll talk some about this next week when we look at the gift of God's Spirit to us. That's a big part of it. We trust that His Spirit is with us, leading us. That's huge. But in a vacuum, we could spoil that gift. We could, we could identify the Spirit with anything we already want. You know, like that still small voice inside that says, I should get everything. We could say, is the Spirit, and move on. So that's not enough. And fortunately, God hasn't left us in that vacuum. And even this text that we've just looked at, the one that ends with a casting of lots points us to what we need to seek God's guidance. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts that I've recommended here before, makes a very interesting observation about how they sought God's will in this important decision. Yes, it ended with lots, but it didn't start there. It started by searching the Scriptures. The very fact that this had to happen and that his office needed to be filled, that's something Peter learned from paying attention to the Psalms. Then they used good common sense. They laid out the criteria and they reasoned together about who fit these criteria. They worked together, thinking through the issue. And after they had such searched the scriptures, and after they had thought it through carefully together, they prayed. They turned to the Lord and asked for Him to be with them, for Him to guide them. Friends, every single one of those steps is ours today to take. We have the scriptures, we have friends paying attention, reasoning with us, helping us. We have prayer with the knowledge that he hears us. And on top of all of it, though we may not have lots, we have his spirit working in every step to guide us. And with those gifts, we can be confident that God has not left us alone to figure out what we need to do as individuals or as a church. But he's with us, guiding us even today. When I started this sermon series, one of the things I suggested you guys ask as you come to each text to figure out what it's really about and to try to learn from it is what is God doing in this text? What is he up to? He's the main actor, the main character in this story. What's he doing here? And in this text, we've seen that God is working out a sovereign plan that is for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he is holding out a certain gospel based on events that have already happened, a fixed content we can trust and bank on that isn't going to change. And he is with us still, guiding us so that we have everything we need to move forward in faith. There's a reason we can be confident as Christians. God is still for us. And we want to pray now that he'll use his word to remind us of that truth and to give us a hope for the week we're facing ahead of us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've spoken to us in your word and especially that you've given us stories like this one that offer us insight into who you are and how you work and what you've done. And, and we want to live our lives in this light and we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to trust you when we don't understand 
to have hope when we can't reverse the sufferings, sorrows, and sins that we've experienced. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to the gospel and not to change it. And we pray that you would guide us because we don't know what's best for our future. In things large and small, we feel our own weakness and inability to see what we need to see. We ask that you would help us to trust that you are for us and that your word this morning would do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.